Winter Olympics opening ceremonies are on right now in Pyeongchang. I got that right, Pyeongchang. You, you did. Okay. No way. <laughs> it'll be a, it'll be a struggle for the next two weeks to keep them straight between the North Korean capital and the host of the Winter Games, but Pyeongchang is correct. So the uh, opening ceremonies are on right now, and we're going to talk about what our favorite winter sports. Are there are we have a lot of serious things that need to be discussed this morning, and right. we will. But uh, for having coffee talking, it's Friday, so we want to lighten things up a little bit there and discuss our favorite winter sports because the Olympics really is that it's that one time every couple of years where everyone pays attention to skiing and skating, and not that those sports don't have merit. But typically, they're a bit lower on the totem pole in a sports cast. You know, for example, on a weekend uh, here on 680 CJ will be on a Saturday. We often get updates on bobsleigh events or skiing events, world the big World Cup events, but they don't make the cut because we got to report on hockey and local hockey. And what if Tiger Woods is playing golf? That's a big deal. So sure. that kind of stuff doesn't get reported on. But the world pays attention to short track speed skating and stuff like that and it's all really cool so i'm excited to have that conversation yeah and i can't wait to hear your favorite sport because we you shared it with me about half an hour ago he'll share it with the masses will brett mcgarry in about a half hour's time well closer to 40 minutes from now uh the news world sort of exploded in this part of the world yesterday yeah. if it's fair to say that uh certainly uh, no physical or literal explosions but an education announcement on funding yesterday the revelations that stan struthers had the nickname mr tickles during part of his time as an MLA, a finance minister for the province of Manitoba, uh, looking at some of the footage, the historical footage, that certainly doesn't even go back that far, far enough, though, to go, geez, yeah, Stan Struthers used to sit right beside the premier of Manitoba in the legislature. And so this revelation that uh, Mr. Struthers had a hard time keeping his hands to himself, complaints by women uh, within his inner circle, within the government uh, circles uh, went essentially un well they didn't go unreported but they certainly went uninvestigated and that's really problematic for me what is the culture uh, we're seeing some of that from Ottawa now does that resonate does that trickle down to Manitoba to the legislature is that a symptom in all levels of government that we have these sort of actions and activities and people Running our country, our province, our city, it'll be uh, one of those things that we'll be keeping a close eye on, but it seems as though every time we open a newspaper, turn on the radio, there is a new allegation somewhere, and politics seems to be the hot spot now. Yeah, Stan Struthers was in cabinet for more than 10 years, and former staff members alleging that he used to touch and tickle them. We just heard in uh, the news with Clay Young, taught one woman saying that uh, Struthers would put his hand under her skirt. And uh, one woman said she reported it to her bosses, but was told an election is coming, mm -hmm. so suck it up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in a statement, Struthers says, quote, I apologize for any interactions I've had that have been inappropriate and that have caused any person to feel disrespected or uncomfortable. My intention was never to treat women as anything other than equal and respected. So I'm just curious to know if this is the beginning, uh, if we're going to hear more of these kinds of stories. Uh, but it's, uh, it's frustrating and sad to, to see that 
it's just it it feels like this kind of never ending wave of of all these things that are happening, whether it's in Hollywood or whether it's in politics or in the workplace or wherever. All these stories coming out into the the public eye, and it kind of makes you wonder, well, what's going on? Like maybe we know people who are dealing with this in not in our workplace or. I don't know, in schools, who knows? I think we've all had that conversation with ourselves, either out loud or quietly in our own heads, looking back and, gee whiz, have have I done things that have been so overtly offensive or could be classified as not necessarily assault, but certainly uh, beyond acceptable? And I think for the most part, I can look back and go, I, I think I'm comfortable with the things that I've done, but this is overt. This is across the line. This seems to be a cultural thing. And the fact that these women were ignored mm-hmm. and that their their cries for help essentially went unresponded to uh, is very problematic for me. Yeah. Uh, suck it up. Yeah. That's unacceptable. Come on now. Come on now. As the opening ceremonies to the Pyeongchang Games continue this morning, Hopefully, uh, if you're watching and you're listening at the same time, we appreciate that very much. Hey, Brett, uh, we get a lot of different emails throughout the morning. I just got one from Angus Reid Institute. It is, uh, well, here's the headline. Hashtag Me Too, moment or movement. And they've done a survey as to how people feel about the Me Too movement. Will it eventually dissipate? Is it making a difference? They surveyed men and women. And the results are very interesting. We'll make time to chit-chat about this as we make our way throughout the morning. Uh, But there is a decided difference of opinion on this depending on which generation. It's very generational as to whether or not this is something that's going to make a difference. And it's got some people of certain generations, older generations, wondering where's the line that's moving too fast. I'm not exactly where this is sure where this is going. So we'll a uh, very comprehensive uh, survey that we'll talk about as we make our way through the day. In the meantime, the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics are well underway. Opening ceremonies this morning. Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple is in South Korea. We spoke with him yesterday, and he joins us once again on 680 CJOB. So, Jeff, uh, another day in South Korea when we left you about 24 hours ago. I mentioned that I wanted to find out from you your impressions of South Korea. Seoul is an amazing city. I've not been there myself, but know several people have worked on the transit system there over the years of all things. Tell us a little bit about Seoul before we uh, take a journey out towards the uh, Olympic uh, Village and Pyeongchang. Well, it's funny you mentioned the transit system because we uh, spent some time down there as well. And uh, one of the most interesting things that struck us was that not only is the subway system one of the busiest and biggest in the world, but these subway stations also serve a pretty significant second purpose in that they are not only subway stations, but bomb shelters full of emergency supplies, water, gas masks, oxygen tanks. These things were built with the purpose of potentially protecting South Koreans in the event of a North Korean artillery strike, because of course Seoul is just about an hour's drive from the border with North Korea, where it's believed that hundreds, if not thousands, of Russian art- or excuse me, North Korean artillery are lined up at the ready 
their guns pointed in the direction of Seoul. So these, you know, subway stations have signs everywhere, you know, warning people about what to do in the event of an attack. But it's it's remarkable, guys, in the same sense that South Koreans sort of just shrug it all off. I think we were discussing yesterday the fact that they're just so used to living in the crosshairs of their neighbor to the north that they're almost desensitized, almost numb to it. And in fact, you know, on one hand, yes, there are all of these, some 19,000 bomb shelters across South Korea, including these subway stations. But a recent opinion poll found that the vast majority of South Koreans don't even know where their closest bomb shelter is located. So they've gotten very used to the threat. And otherwise, in terms of impressions of the city, it is just electric. I mean, we are talking about you know, say in Toronto terms, a city that is smaller in size than Toronto, but is has a population that is more than three times bigger. It just never sleeps. It is unbelievably crowded, but unbelievably electric. And it was a treat to get to spend a few days there. Hey, what's the weather like over there? It's pretty cold, uh, even by you know Winnipeg standards. It's um, I think it, it's been it's been unusually cold for this time of year. Uh, tonight, uh, not as bad as it's been over the past week, but with the wind chill, it feels like minus ten, and that is creating probably a bit of a chill for the thirty-five thousand people or so who were expected to attend the opening ceremonies, which are happening uh, right about now, and are. At, at happening in an, in an Olympic stadium that was built without a roof, it turns out. So a lot of uh, very cold fans attending the opening ceremonies in minus 10 degrees. So, Jeff, we also know that uh, K-pop, Korean pop, uh, is a big part of the culture. Talk a little bit about that and... Did we see you learning how to dance on TV last night? Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) It was very entertaining, by the way. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I've, uh, well, you know, you can always count on your friends and family, to be honest, right? And uh, so I've got a lot of honest feedback about that attempt at a dance and basically told to, in no uncertain terms, to just never try try that again. (laughs) And that I brought shame to the Semple family name. But anyway, yeah, we we just decided to stop by for a bit of fun, this K-pop, Korean pop music dance studio in Seoul and part of the reason we were there well really the central reason we were there is because we were working on a story about K-pop propaganda the fact that there are a number of these radio stations most of them based in Seoul the South Korean capital whose express purpose is to broadcast into North Korea and they broadcast messages they broadcast stories about what it's like in the South but they also broadcast K-pop music which you know songs that uh, tend to be about love uh, sort of carefree enjoying life uh, the lyrics that sort of paint this picture of what it, what life is like in the south and as silly as it might seem to some of us that is a threat to the north korean regime k-pop music is banned in the north along with you know and all other foreign art for that matter and that's because the north korean regime is worried that it offers a glimpse into what life is like outside the hermit king- kingdom the most isolated country on earth and in fact we spoke to a radio host who's broadcasting k-pop music to north korea targeting young people specifically in North Korea because she used to be one of them. She grew up in North Korea. She listened to the radio and these songs illegally, you know, secretly. And it was that in part that encouraged her and her family to defect and escape North Korea. So she's hoping to encourage other people to do the same and slowly, hopefully, to encourage change from within North Korea. Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple joining us once again from South Korea.
quite the assignment Jeff gets, right? Lives yeah. in Europe for the most part, and then, hey, you want to swing over to South Korea and cover the Olympic Games and some of the great stories? And this is a, you know, not necessarily coming out for South Korea, as a lot of Olympic Games are for countries that have never hosted before. Uh, but South Korea did host the Summer Games back in, in 1988, and I think that was our first look at a modern South Korea, and that's hard to believe that it's 30 years ago. Yeah. Since Ben Johnson had his gold medal stripped away from him uh, following uh, initially winning the gold medal in the 100-meter race, that was uh, one of my great memories that was shattered as a as a youth. Same. Uh, you know, that was such a great race. Don Whitman calling the race. Uh, but it will be fascinating to see South Korea a little bit, learn a little bit more about this country that uh, came back from devastation of war in the, in the last five or six decades. And uh, thrilled to see uh, Winnipegger David Graves marching with the Israeli Olympic team today. What an absolute thrill of a lifetime. I saw Dave's post on Facebook about 4 a.m. this morning, had his marchers pass and uh, completely missed him on the TV this morning, but going to try and uh, catch up and catch some video of that later on today. And he's coaching, is it a bobsled team? Yeah, he's essentially the head of the Israeli bobsleigh and skeleton team. They have two skeleton athletes uh, in the winter game. So very exciting for him and a strong Winnipeg connection there, of course. So is he like the, the John Candy, a.k.a. Jamaican bobsled team? Guy, you drew the perfect parallel. Okay. Absolutely. Cool runnings, Israel style. <laughs> of course, the uh, Olympic Winter Games getting underway this morning. Well, the games have been going for a couple days already, yeah. right, Kelly? Yeah, they started Wednesday, actually. That's crazy. I was yeah. watching some of the figure skating last night. Thursday in Pyeongchang, but right. Wednesday here. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I got suckered in already. Been mm-hmm. watching the doubles curling, which I love. Jeff Courier, I don't care that you don't like it. I love it. I think it's fantastic. It moves so quickly. And uh, Canada tied for first place right yes. now. Yeah, three and one. Big game tonight against the Swiss at six o'clock our time. And the Swiss are the reigning world champions. Okay. Yeah. So that's John Morris, who was born in Winnipeg. Right. And of course, Caitlin Laws, who is proudly a Winnipegger uh, to this very yeah. moment. And last April, the Swiss beat Reed Carruthers of Winnipeg in the final in Lethbridge. Okay. So, yeah. See, uh, he's a walking encyclopedia. So we need to get even tonight. <laughs> I like the way you're thinking, Kelly. Uh, the Jets in uh, action against the Blues tonight as well. We'll talk about that throughout the morning. But we want to talk about our favorite winter game sports. And Brett McGarry, uh, you are a self-proclaimed not sportsing guy, mm-hmm. but you have a couple of favorite sports in the winter games. Yeah, I have. I've taken a little bit to something called ski cross which is an event that was just introduced into the Olympics in 2010 in Vancouver. And this is, it's kind of like, it's often considered part of freestyle skiing where they're, they're, they're going downhill, but it's kind of going back and forth and they're go, they go over jumps and stuff. So it's almost like an, like a skiing obstacle course. And I know that's a kind of a pedestrian way. But it's of not one it. at a time, right? They're no, racing. There's four yeah. or five skiers at a time. Yeah. So it's uh it's a wild event and it's just, uh, it, it adds uh, this sort of like, tense racing element to it because you I'm trying to th- figure out what it would be like to be going over these big jumps beside three other people at the same time potentially so it's a really neat event and I also I always enjoy watching the short track speed skate skate relays where there's like 
20 people on the ice or however many people. (laughs) The tush push. It's just such organized (laughs) chaos. It's like this ballet uh, that that could go so wrong so quick with one bad move. So, yeah, Yeah. I always find that super exciting. Kind of like NASCAR on ice. (laughs) It it really is. Kathy Kennedy uh, joining us, uh, KK filling in for Hal Anderson. Is your last afternoon uh, today, Kath? my last afternoon. Oh, well. But uh, we've got some other things planned for you over the next few weeks. So you're not going anywhere quickly. What do you like to watch uh, during the Olympic Winter Games? Well, I'm with you, Greg. I'm, I love the figure skating and uh, stayed up too I late. I didn't say day. I loved it. I said I was okay. watching it. You love yeah. it, right. Macklin. <laughs> I, I love watching the skating. I was pretty surprised at the poor effort on behalf of the men last night. Uh, it was just a gong show on the ice, got to tell you. But, well, Kathy, uh, you know, there, there is an explanation for that, though. I'm not making excuses for them, but TV has a lot to do with that. These these athletes are competing a lot earlier than what they normally do, so it really has taken them out of their rhythm. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you for the explanation. It's still with a gong show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Kathy <laughs> Kennedy telling it the way it is. Exactly. I uh, I love, I think it's called the biathlon, where the skiers, they ski, and then they stop, and then they shoot at targets, and then they keep on, I mean, it's uh, a sight to behold, really, um, you know, to, to, to go around a track and give it your all, you know, for five, six kilometers, and then stop and steady yourself and shoot at a target. I love that. Kathy, were you, were you listening yesterday when Brett and I were talking about the Ring of Shame? No. Okay, so they have this penalty ring as part of biathlon now. They brought it in a few years ago. Instead of two-second or four-second penalties for missing a target, now you have a 150-meter track that you have to ski skate around while you watch your competitors keep going, oh. and that's the penalty for missing your target. So that is a new element that, that I'm really looking yeah, I, I forward think, to focusing on. I think the first medals of the Games, too, are going to be handed out in biathlon oh, uh, great. Yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. Fantastic. Kelly, yeah. you might must have a whole litany of favorites. I I love watching pretty much everything, but uh, for sure, obviously hockey, and I don't care whether NHLers are there or not. I'm going to watch hockey. Not one iota. I just, I love the game. Uh, But also, uh, I have to say that uh, probably going back to Joanny Rochette in 2010, I've become a huge figure skating fan. I have yet to witness an athlete who performed with courage like that young woman did, losing her mother just days before the competition and going out there and skating her heart out. Uh, So, uh, yeah, that, that. But you know, uh, I enjoy watching athletes perform in in any discipline. Clay, man. You? Oh, sorry, Brett. Go oh, ahead, Clay. Me? Yeah. You. Oh, okay. Well, I'm like <laughs> I'm like uh, I'm like Kelly uh, for hockey. However, I, I'm excited that the NHL is not there. Why? Because this is you know if if the NHL was there. I'd be waking up and I'd be listening to OB and Canada shellacked Norway nine to two or whatever and so and so from the Jets or so and so from the Predators scored three gold. Everyone expects that. Now they're on an even playing field. I think I want to see our Canadian team against the Russian Canadian team and the Czech. I no NHL players. I think it's going to be a much more interesting thing to watch now. Okay, you, that's just me. Well, my favorite sport isn't actually in the Winter Games. Mine is apres ski. Oh. <laughs> I think it's a big part of the Olympics if you hear some of the stories about what's going on in the Olympic Village and how many oh. condoms are made available and some of the different stories. We have 30 seconds. What was the sport you were, that I referred to of yours? 
Crashed ice. This oh, thing yeah. needs to be in the Olympic Games. Uh, essentially, yeah. it's downhill skate racing. They do it at the uh, Quebec Winter Carnival. Red yeah. Bull sponsors it. They take it all across North America now. We've got to find a way to do this in Winnipeg. It's the coolest thing. Look it up. Red Bull crashed ice should be in the Winter Games. It's like McGarry's cross skiing on skates. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. Well put, Kelly Moore. The funding wasn't frozen, but it was as close as you can get to freeze a 0.5% increase, not 5%, half a percent. The other major announcement, education-wise, was the intention to reduce the number of so-called bargaining units moving forward. We have heard reaction from Norm Gould of Manitoba Teachers Society. A multitude of school divisions have weighed in. The opposition parties on Broadway have their view. What about parents? those who are voters, taxpayers, and parents of school-age children. To get their point of view, we welcome Naomi Cruz. She's Executive Director of Manitoba Association of Parent Councils. And Naomi, good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning on Mackling and McGarry. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. What was the initial action or reaction to this announcement from your members and, and maybe uh, you personally? Um, Well, I think, you know, parents are always concerned when they hear that there's not going to be put more money put into education than they were hoping for, uh, because we don't want to see impacts to programming and supports and resources that kids and parents and families need for students to succeed in schools. So, Naomi Cruz, uh, who does your organization uh, represent? Um, We actually represent the parental voice of uh, parents involved with schools in Manitoba. So currently we represent 27 school divisions with about 350 school members of uh, parent-based or school-based parent groups. What are your priorities, uh, Naomi, as as you form an organization like this? And and how do you get those uh, priorities across to the powers that be? Uh, Give us an idea of, of how that works. Um, well, our, our biggest priority is ensuring that parents have a voice in their local school communities because that autonomy is important because every community is going to be different and unique in what its needs are. And uh, we want parents' voice to be included in the discussions involving education about what families need so that they can support their kids um, to be successful in school communities. So, you know, one of the ways we like to communicate that is the importance of parents being involved in school and divisional planning. So that way, um, when when they're they're choosing their priorities, um, parents need to know uh, what can we do to support those priorities. What do parents and families need so that they can support those priorities? Um, and then you take it forward from there. So it's about being part of the conversation. So those local needs are met and that they're understood and that people feel or parents feel that they have a have a place to voice their concerns and then also build that understanding about what is what education's challenges are and how parents can then help to address those gaps where needed. Naomi, does more money equal a better education? Um I well, you know, certainly, like there's realities about it. You know, like you've got you've got resources that cost money, and as as we purchase things, we know that prices go up. And when you can't get those resources, that often ends up falling on the back of parents in local communities with fundraising efforts and stuff like that. So if they want to do a school ground renewal project. Um, divisions often don't have the extra capital to put into that, so parents will do fundraisers to help supplement it. But they're also supplementing things like field trips, um, classroom resources, 
Uh, I've got parent groups who have purchased air conditioners in the past, so kids are more com- kids and teachers are more comfortable in their classrooms if they don't have an air conditioning um, units in the in the school. So they end up addressing those extra needs, and that's what's concerning about the budget right now. Is you know it, with, with no more money um, being put into it, who, whose back is that going to fall on? And with the cap of two percent for pet taxpayers, our concern is certainly that volunteers and uh, lo- and parents are the ones that are going to end up bearing the brunt, or there's going to be a loss of programming, or that kids are going to be impacted in some other way. The cost of heating and lighting and building and maintaining schools is sort of a fixed cost. Yeah, uh, they they have to do that no matter what. Right, so the, that, and you know, prices keep going up. That's just the reality, and we know that buildings need to be repaired. We've got parents who are concerned because their kids are in portable classrooms, um, you know, and that there's no money for infrastructure changes in in school communities. So, you know, this looks like that could be a worsening of those problems, and that's what parents are going to be worried about because without that extra money put into the system, um, how are those challenges now going to be addressed? Well, and it's it's the extras, like you mentioned, that, that seem to suffer first because those uh, fixed costs, including teachers' salaries, there's no getting around those. Uh, those costs are what they are as long as the number of teachers stay in place, which is why the union gets nervous, right? Because it's easy to cut a teaching position, uh, hypothetically, to save a little bit of money for the extra things. But it is the extra things, the, the, the field trips and the and the improvements maybe to the computer lab and, and the and the sort of things that the extras that some people that are outside the system look their, down their nose at sometimes and say, well, do you really need that? Uh, but as a parent, you know that your kids absolutely do need these things. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, like concerning teachers, we want to see qualified, engaged people who care about kids and that, uh, you know, they want to work on solutions that involve parents and communities so that there's great learning experiences provided to kids everywhere in Manitoba. Um, That shouldn't be because one school community has the ability to raise funds and another community may not. So does that now create a have and have not situation in some communities, especially in light of a funding announcement that's, that's, you um, you know, far less than what we were hoping to see. Naomi Cruz, Executive Director of the Manitoba Association of Parent Councils. Thank you so much for joining us today on 680 CJOB. Thank you for having me. February is Black History Month, and to tell us about what's happening this weekend, we are joined live on 680 CJOB by Nadia Thompson, who is the chairperson for Black History Month here in Winnipeg. Nadia, good morning to you. Good morning. So before the commercials, we mentioned that you're celebrating the new face of the $10 bill, Viola Desmond. How are you going to do that in Winnipeg this weekend? Well, this weekend we are going to be having a luncheon at the Jamaican Association uh, Cultural Center, and we will be presenting uh, a small little um, dedication to Viola, and it's going with our theme for the luncheon, which is celebrating female entrepreneurs. And um, we have a few speakers coming out to talk about um, being female and being a successful business person. So we're going to be doing that on Sunday. It starts at 1 o'clock. Tickets are $15. You can purchase them at the venue, which is 1098 Winnipeg Avenue. Now, I think a lot of people have this idea that Black History Month is celebrated exclusively in the United States. Uh, Simply not the case, Nadia. That is not the case. We've been doing it for 37 years here in Winnipeg. 
And you also have something that is uh, happening tonight, I believe, a we celebration do. of music. Yes, we are doing Celebration of Music. It is at XQ's um, Sergeant Avenue, 551. Tickets are $10. It is a, um, we're doing Songs of Freedom. So we have local artists performing in their genre, different songs from the past. And it's actually a really great event. It's live music. We've got food, we've got drinks. So it's a great evening. Now the awards banquet and closing ceremony coming up on February 24th. You, the public can nominate people for these awards, can they not? Yes, definitely. We're coming down to the wire, so if you haven't already done so, we can get you a nomination form. You can email us. You can hit us up on our Facebook page, Black History Month Winnipeg. Um, we also have a blog spot, um, and there's Twitter, there's Instagram, so there's numerous ways to get a hold of us. If you Google Black History Month Winnipeg, all of our sites come up there. Um, but we definitely want to continue to... Um, appreciate all those that are volunteering that are being successful in our community by nominating them and they come out on and on the um sorry the closing ceremonies and the award banquet on the 24th of february okay and that's at the norwood hotel 112 marion street nadia thompson thank you so much for joining us chairperson of black history month here in winnipeg <laughs> this a uh, kazoo today is that what this is and uh, what is this, the universal theme? Okay, very Jay, good. Jerry forgot good. his recorder at oh, home. Full orchestra oh. of kazoos. Yes, yeah, that's uh, pretty good. That's the OMD of kazoos there. O- that's, uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, right? Was OMD? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, two two in the mouth, two in the nose. We're good to go. Full orchestra. <laughs> So let's move on. There are three movies opening this weekend that I want to tell you about. But before I tell you about those, I want to just give you a quick preview of a movie that's opening next weekend because I got to see it last night. Hold on. How did you get to see it last night if it's not opening for another seven days? Typically, they always have the or they often have these movie premieres, right? These these preview screenings. They tend to do them on Wednesdays, sometimes Thursdays for the upcoming whatever the weekend is. So if I see it Wednesday, it means it's opening Friday. But this time they they showed the screening last night. I'm guessing just to help generate or help generate extra buzz for Marvel's Black Panther. I have seen gods fly. I've seen men build weapons that I couldn't even imagine. Uh huh. I've seen aliens drop from the sky. Yeah. But I have never seen anything like this. How much more are you hiding? So I have to ask you, plain and simply, is it buzzworthy, Brett? Yes, definitely. You can believe the hype. Black Panther currently has a 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 83 positive reviews so far, two Rotten reviews. So I'm curious to see how that will change as it goes. But uh, yeah, this was, I've, I've read some headlines that say this is the first Marvel movie that matters. I mean, I'm a huge comic book fan, so if they all matter to me. But in terms of social and uh, societal and, you know, current issues, it's very relevant. And uh, I was surprised at the the gravitas this movie had. It's not just a, a comic book throwaway popcorn piece. It has great action, but it's also a really important story. You mused and thought for the first time after we had our conversation about Black History Month, hey, wait a minute. 
Is there a reason why it's being released in February? Yeah, you got to think that it has uh, has to do with the fact that February is Black History Month. So, yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about Black Panther, and I'll give you a full review of that next week. But right now, you mentioned that there's a movie opening this week, and you really want to see. I do. Clint Eastwood has become one of my favorite directors. Some of his political views I do not agree with, but he makes a great movie. And this one, 1517 to Paris... I think I gotta see it. There you go. Thank you. Look at the baby soda, Spencer. Alex, shut the heck up. So this is a true story. It's about three American soldiers on vacation in Europe. They're on a train headed for Paris. When terrorists try to take over and these three guys stopped the attack and were lauded as heroes, and the hook with this movie that's directed by Clint Eastwood, as you pointed out, is the, the actual guys, Spencer Stone, Anthony Sadler, and Alex Scarlatos, are playing themselves. Now, isn't that the coolest thing in a long time to come to a movie? It's, it's certainly an interesting gimmick. Wow. But, you think it's a gimmick? Well, that, that because one headline I saw said, these guys are heroes, not actors. Okay. And the reviews are not kind so far. Oh, shoot. So it's not saying don't go see it. Bang! I'm certainly curious about it. Maybe instead you want to go see Fifty Shades. It's the exciting conclusion to the Fifty Shades saga. Thank goodness it's the conclusion. Is that a promise? Fifty Shades Freed, where I'm sure they lived, they're going to live happily ever after. Sure. Probably not. As Jeff Braun said, I'm sure there will be complications Sexy complications. This is Gio Matteo, the architect. This location is perfect. I'm going to build you a fabulous house. Please stop speaking to my husband as if I weren't here. Anna. <laughs> you may call me Mrs. Gray. Oh, sassy. It is, it is, it is owned like Donkey Kong. <laughs> and then finally, uh, Peter Rabbit. What? Blue jacket, no pants, you must be Peter Rabbit. Yeah, that's right. Wait, didn't you try to eat me? Show me your teeth. Do like a goat, like... It was you! I knew it! How are you? So good to see you. Really? James Corden? You don't More like it? James Corden? Yeah, he's kind of ubiquitous these days. Yeah, ubiquitous is one thing. Everywhere, all the time. I know that's the exact meaning of ubiquitous, but it's just getting to be a little much. Yeah, it's an anime, so it's a live action uh, mixed with animation about Peter Rabbit, a character who has endured since 1902. It looks like a lot of fun for the family. So those that's what's new at the movies this weekend. Couch Potatoes tomorrow afternoon at 12 o'clock, and then again Sunday at 6, or you can subscribe. Subscribe to the podcast on Google Play and on iTunes. Oh, waiting to see what this is. What is this, Jerry? I like it. That's Half Full Glass of Wine by Tame Impala. Oh, (laughs) of course. And we'll explain the method behind that madness. Over the last several days, things have gotten fairly ugly in the relationship between Alberta and British Columbia. And uh, I'm really glad that we're not living in Edmonton or Calgary right now because Jackie would be really angry if she wasn't able to get her favorite Okanagan Valley wines. And so that got us thinking about the idea. Sorry, Jackie, I just threw you under the bus again. Uh, the whole idea of, you know, how popular are British Columbia wines in Manitoba? The fact that 
Alberta is not going to be receiving these wines, could it have an open a, an opportunity for Manitoba to maybe bring in more wines because there are state wineries that that uh, bottle much smaller quantities? Uh, lots of questions in my mind. So we phoned around and it didn't take us very long to get the feedback. Ben McPhee Sigurdsson is the guy you ought to be speaking to. And Ben is a writer for the Winnipeg Free Press. He writes about wine and drinks. Ben, are you yeah. retiring anytime soon? <laughs> No, no, never, no. <laughs> never. You can you can pry pry my my uh, space in the free press out of my cold wine soaked hands. <laughs> what an incredible gig! Uh, you were just in British Columbia at something called a BC Wine Boot Camp. Why don't we start there and let's sure. let's get educated on BC wines because they've come come such a long way in the last four decades, the last twenty years since I moved away from the Okanagan. Uh, they've grown by leaps and bounds. Absolutely, it's a it's a billion dollar industry. There's a few hundred wineries throughout uh, British Columbia now, most of which are in the Okanagan Valley. And so this BC Wine Boot Camp brought together some sommeliers, some wine journalists, uh, both national and international, to learn everything you could possibly think of to learn about BC wine. You know, the the soil, the geology, the climate, the tasting older, newer vintages, tasting BC wine versus international wines. And it was just a, an immensely eye-opening experience and just really brought to light sort of how far uh, BC wine has come. Where does BC wine stack up in Canada in terms of uh, how much of it, I guess, comes from that part of our country? Well, uh, here in Manitoba, uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about a national market. Here in Manitoba, it's almost a, if you go to, to Manitoba Liquor Marts, uh, I was checking on their website, the, it's almost a 50-50 split in terms of BC and Ontario. And we're sort of geographically ideally positioned in that we get, uh, we're sort of halfway between BC and Ontario. So it's almost an even mix. Um uh, a lot of what we see are sort of the bottled and blended in Canada stuff. They're really uh, $10, $12 stuff. And it's it's a blend. It's it's typically a blend of international grapes uh, that are bottled and assembled essentially in Canada. But the, 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 the VQA stuff, Vintners Quality Alliance, which is the system of checks and balances for producing uh, good quality wine made from uh, domestically grown grapes in the Okanagan, uh, that's sort of where the, the, the real, the bread and butter and, and, and the fantastic uh, products are coming out of uh, from BC. Yeah, and that v, VQA distinction is something that a lot of people don't realize why mm-hmm. it's on there. Maybe, Ben, you could uh, tell us and expand. You kind of touched on it there, sure. and maybe there's not much more to say, but uh, that that is a, a very uh, distinct sort of declaration uh, yeah. when it's wrapped with that VQA label. Absolutely. So it, it 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 guarantees the place of origin of the grapes, as opposed to you know sort of a big uh, bulk container of juice coming from Chile or Australia, which you know a lot of these sort of like uh, uh, entry level ten twelve dollar wines that are uh, sort of quote unquote Canadian are are coming from. Uh, uh, VQA wines uh, ensure that the the grapes are coming from where they say they're coming from, be it the Okanagan Valley, Similkameen Valley, uh, Vancouver Island, uh, or you know in Ontario, Niagara Peninsula, Prince Edward County, etc. And, uh, and and they do uh, undergo a stringent uh, sort of system of checks and balances and tests, including tasting, uh, to ensure that they're sort of up to standard. Now, the even though that this problem with Alberta and BC could potentially cause some problems getting that wine mm-hmm. into Manitoba. You were telling me that there is still an opportunity for people in Manitoba to just order direct from the wineries. Absolutely. One of the, one of the great things about, so uh, there's a federal, there was a federal law that banned the interprovincial shipping of wine. The, the federal government, uh, the, the previous federal government uh, sort of uh, relented and said, well, we're going to leave it up to the provinces. So uh, Manitoba is one of a couple provinces in Canada where you can uh, ship, uh, have wine shipped to you uh, direct from a 
winery. So if you go to the Okanagan Valley and you find this small producer that uh, whose wine you really love and you come back here and you can't find it on shelves and stuff, you can go to their website, order a case, and it'll come directly to uh, your house. You can even have it auto-shipped on a monthly basis. I That's may right. yeah, know or clubs. not know anybody that does <laughs> yeah. that. Well, there's no, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no, no shame in that. It's completely legal, obviously. Yeah, there's a wine clubs that you can join where they send, yeah, every every few months they send send you like a half dozen bottles of sort of, sp- and they're usually like actually quite limited special release bottles too. So they're very interesting. So if the geography affects uh, the mix of wines that that we import in Manitoba, that fifty fifty, mm-hmm. and if all of a sudden now that market is is mostly closed. There's going to be a ways around this for for retailers, I imagine, in Alberta. But let's just pretend Mm -hmm. it it creates some sort of issue for BC. Is there an opportunity for Manitoba to maybe bring in some wines that they wouldn't have had access to because those wines were, you know, it's easier to get them into Alberta. But you know what? Let's let's try another market now. Yeah, I mean, Alberta is is British Columbia's biggest market within Canada for sure, and so closing that door uh, obviously leaves a a big gap in terms of what. BC wineries can do. Uh, it's it's possible, yeah. That uh, who knows, we could see some some additional products coming into you know Manitoba liquor marts or private wine stores. But there's probably more of an opportunity for, for in, ter- in terms of direct to consumer, um, like ordering online from the wineries and stuff. But there is also an issue in that some winery uh, wines that come into our market and are on store shelves from BC go through Alberta warehouses. So I'm not exactly sure how this boycott impacts that. Whether it's going to stop uh, the uh, the wines from flowing through those warehouses and into Manitoba or not, or if it's just more on the consumer side of things in Alberta where it's going to be more of the boycott happening. So. Well, I guess that's another side of the story we mm-hmm. need to keep an eye on here totally. in Manitoba and find out if it will impact us eventually. Ben McPhee Sigurdsson with the Winnipeg Free Press, wine columnist, literary editor. I don't know anything about wine production and where it's made, and mm-hmm. I know Manitoba doesn't necessarily have an, uh, does not have an ideal climate, but is there mm-hmm. any good wine that comes out of this province? No comment. <laughs> uh, not really. I mean, you know, it's really, we're not, uh, the, the wines that we, we typically see uh, coming uh, on, on our shelves are made from a, a species of wine called Vitis uh, vinifera, which is sort of internationally grown grapes. They're, it's just too cold here for them to survive. You'd have to go out into the, the, the vineyards and essentially bury your vines over the winter so, so that they wouldn't die. Okay. That's, well, I figured as much, but. But lots of good beer. Lots of good beer. Oh, you're and, some nice, and some half and, decent whiskey too. And some nice spirits, exactly. Well, and, and we had uh, Ben actually was with a co-judge, one of the co-judges when I had the battle was at the Battle of the Wits at the Grove over the summer uh, between uh, Barnhammer Brewing and Torque Brewing. Right. Torque put up the Woody Belgian, and Barnhammer put up Le Sneak Belgique. I think that ended up being a draw, right? Because yeah. we picked Torque, uh, but the the popular vote went That's to right. Barnhammer. There may have been a, a few retastings to sort of try, you know, just, just to, to make quality sure. control and ensure that we we really hit, hit it out of the park. Yeah. We we had to do our research. Due diligence. Yeah. I uh, respect you both on that front, but I am uh, very hurt that I wasn't invited by either one of you to uh, conduct the research alongside you. So <laughs> I will, uh, I'll put up my hand now as a willing volunteer the you, next time these uh, tough assignments come up. You bring me back and I'll bring some, uh, some samples. <laughs> it's a deal, Ben. Ben McPhee Sigurdsson, you can read his work in the Winnipeg Free Press. He is a wine columnist, literary editor, and hopefully will be a regular contributor on our show. Thanks for coming in, Ben. We appreciate it. My pleasure. World-class, local, Winnipeg-bred athlete, Desiree Scott. 
Is it okay? I, I know in this day and age, you got to be careful what you say between the genders. I adore you. Uh-huh. I adore what you do for Canada on the soccer field and how proud of Winnipegger you are, Desiree. And uh, we're so fortunate to have you as one of our own and as an ambassador of our city. So it's always great to catch up with you. I've interviewed you, I think, three times. This will be the first time face-to-face. So oh. it's, a, it's a real thrill for me to get to meet you. Well, I appreciate you guys having me and for the kind words. That's sweet. So you're a soccer player or a football player, depending on what uh, side of the pond you're on. That's right. But uh, you you came in here with a hockey stick. So I what's, did. what's going on? bit different than a soccer ball. Um, no, I'm just helping to raise awareness and promote Can- Canadian Tire's Golden Hockey Tour. Um, it's just a golden stick that I'm going to be around in the community showing. It's going coast to coast, and it's just you're double tapping and showing your support for the Olympic athletes that are currently out in Pyeongchang. Yeah, I'm going to go grab this thing because we're also streaming on Facebook Live right now. So if you go to uh, 680 CJOB's Facebook page, you'll be able to see this stick that's got some built-in technology. I mean, the way Patrick Laine shoots a puck these days, you think that it was robotic or something, <laughs> right? And the different uh, changing technologies of the sticks. There's actually a digital counter in this thing, and right now it reads 31,248. When it came in here, it was at 246, 31, 246. What's this symbolizing, Desiree, and and, and where's this fantastic piece of uh, Canadiana on its way to? Yeah, it's going coast to coast. It was started in Halifax, we went through Toronto, and now it's here in Winnipeg. And literally, we're going to be going out. I'll be at the WSF North Soccer Facility tomorrow from 10 to 12, so people in the community can come hang out, double tap the stick, and it's really just about showing the support for all the Canadian Olympic athletes that are out there. That stick's actually going to end up back in the Canadian Olympic House once it's gone across Canada, just so the athletes can see how many Canadians across the country have have shown their support for them. It's really just about connecting all of Canada and just getting them to rally behind the Olympics. What other pit stops do you have to make? I'm just the Winnipeg gal. Okay, so so the, the stick, a, you're not going across the no, country. No, I'm the not. Stick. I'm here just obviously repping, repping Winnipeg like I like to do and helping out Canadian Tire. So when you, now that the Olympics have begun, the Winter Olympics, uh, having played in the Olympics before, um, I mean, the Olympics are cool for all of us, but being an Olympian yourself, I, I'm guessing it's a little bit extra special when you yeah, see Yeah, I think it's cool just to support any Canadian athlete. I think all the athletes in all the country get behind the Olympics and just to get in that Olympic spirit. And I think it's cool to watch just because we've gone through the prep and we know about all the four years leading up to this event and how much work and effort and dedication goes into it. And then to see the athletes there, you know, wearing the red and white, I think is a huge honor. And just to see them perform and, and just to see how the country really rallies behind their athletes, I think is really cool. So it'll be fun to watch. Yeah, you know, I, I was mentioning to you off air, my kids uh, play FIFA uh, on on their video game. And of course, uh, you and Christine and the Canadian team are on there. And I I haven't played it with them because I'm not nearly as good as they are. But you're, you're on there with your pink bandana and everything, or your, yeah, your headband, I should we're say. we're in there, pink headband. They gave me a few inches taller, so I appreciate that. But, <laughs> yeah, it's the only time I score any goals is when I'm someone's playing FIFA. <laughs> so the uh, Olympics that are on right now, are there any sports? We talked earlier about our favorite sports. I'm a big fan of ski cross and nice. uh, the short track speed skating relays. What uh, what sports do you like? Well, I think I being a Manitoban, it might be stereotypical, but I'm going to watch the curling, obviously. Uh, my mom's a big curling fan, but Caitlin Laws, she's in the mixed doubles. She actually taught me how to curl. We did a thing for kids sport, a her, her turf, his turf sort of thing, and she came on the soccer pitch, and then she came and helped me and taught me a little bit about the curling scene. So it's nutty how much... Uh, skill and 
I don't know, technique is involved in that. So I probably watched that just because I met her. It's kind of cool to know people who are in the Olympics. Obviously, the women's hockey, a couple of Manitobans there from the city. So it'll be cool to watch. Yeah. Caitlin is quite the athlete. I think a lot of people underestimate how athletic. And Jill Officer, who we had uh, on the program earlier this week, uh, world-class athlete in her own right. I, this is a very demanding sport now. For sure. Things have changed, definitely. And somebody, uh, one of my buddies actually sent me a text this morning describing, he said, I've never really watched this mixed doubles. It's it's kind of like the NBA jam of curling. <laughs> Remember that? That was a two-on-two two on two, arcade yes. basketball game. That's awesome. Yeah, it is really neat. Neat. And of course, John Morris, uh, born in Winnipeg as well, repping uh, Canada in that competition. So as we, we look at the Olympics and, and the whole idea, um, my buddy uh, Dave Graves uh, representing uh, Israel, he's part of the I- Israeli contingent at the at the games. And he posted on Facebook this morning his pass uh, to march in with the athletes this morning. And I got all tingly for him. And, uh, you know, he's on the other side of the world. But I just wanted to give him a great big hug because I know it's a dream come true. What is it like? to walk into that stadium uh, for an opening and or a closing ceremony. Yeah, usually our tournament starts before the opening ceremony, right. so we haven't got to go, but we've been to the closing ceremonies. And it's just to see that sea of red, but also all the other countries, it's just like the whole world uniting around sport, which I think is so cool. And we just show how much Canadian pride we have, the entire Canadian Olympic team. It's not just the soccer team, it's all sport. And I think it's just super cool to be able to represent your country on an international stage and just to be doing it together as a whole country is amazing so when your you your olympics experience was in rio uh which is far away from canada so how do you still feel that support from canadians while you're in another country in another continent yeah i think you know leading up to the olympics social media is huge for that obviously during the tournament we don't try and rely on that to support but we know building up to the olympics just you feel that support and that energy not only from Winnipeg where I'm from but from the entire country and obviously the messages of support and the videos that get sent in prior or the cards that are sent in there's a lot of prep leading up from schools and different communities around around the country and it's just you definitely feel like they're your your 12th man out there and you play for more than just yourself you're playing for the little girls who want to be you you're playing for all the people who got you to where you are so it's kind of just a whole you know full circle thing and you're in a bubble when you're out there it's really more when you when you come home and you realize, okay, literally the entire country was watching and had my back. So, and Of course, 2016 was difficult in the sense that there was lots of expectations, right, based on what you did in London in 2012. And, and so I think for professional athletes and high-level athletes, uh, what separates the best from from the better athletes is how you put those expectations aside. Is, is there some truth to that? Yeah, I think there's obviously a ton of pressure going into an Olympic Games for any athlete. And obviously you want to perform to the best of your abilities. Having one medal, you want to prove that it wasn't just a one-off. You want to show you can do it again and get back on that podium. But a little pressure, I think, is good. It allows you to know, you know... Um, push you a little bit and fuel the fire. But I think you just got to focus on you and your team and, and leave all the outside distractions out and allow you to just focus on your game and perform within within that tournament. And all the prep and all the work leading up, I think, is what you have to trust in. So uh, women's professional hockey is a, is a thing now. But before women's professional hockey, there was women's professional soccer. It's really taken on a life of its own. Uh, you you were with uh, FC uh, Kansas City for a couple seasons. They unfortunately disbanded, right? after the, After the 2017 season, but you've landed on your feet, no surprise. Where are you going to be playing next year, Desiree? I have. I'm heading to the mountains in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'll be a Utah Royals for this upcoming season. Preseason is actually starting next week. So, oh my word, really? Yeah, it's cracking on. Yeah, it's busy times. You, preseason in Utah right now? Yes. 
I think it's warmer than Winnipeg, so it'll be oh, all right. Well, that's not that's not difficult. <laughs> How long is the season? Um, it goes till middle of September. September 22nd is the championship, so hopefully I'll still be trucking along and I'll be in that game. Cool. Well, so where can we see you once again tomorrow? Yes, from 10 till noon at the Winnipeg Soccer Federation North Indoor Soccer Complex. I'll be there. Hopefully a lot of people come out and show their support for the Canadian Olympic athletes. Now, if you're on Facebook, you can see Desiree's Get Up, but you've got this great toque. It says, we all play for Canada, a Canadian tire, obviously instrumental in making this tour happen. And we'd be remiss by not thanking them for... uh, helping us visit with you today. Uh, but you've been involved in, in a lot of uh, different events that Canadian Tire sponsors. That They are really putting their efforts behind amateur sport in our country. Yeah, it's incredible. I'm happy to be a part of, of Canadian Tire's you know, initiative here. And obviously to get around behind the Olympic athletes is an important thing for me. So I'm happy it worked out. She's an Olympian. She is a professional soccer player. And she is a Winnipegger. Desiree Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand? The reason why we're playing this music is it's one of the films that our next guest has been in, Weird Science, this weekend at the the RBC Convention Centre. It's the Horror and Sci-Fi Expo. It's happening tomorrow from 10 a.m. until 8 p.m. and then Sunday from 10 a.m. until 6 p.m. Michael Berryman, who was in Weird Science, but most famously, I'm sure, known for The Hills Have Eyes. Michael, is that a safe uh, assessment? That's the, the one that you're known for? That is a safe assessment. Okay. You've done a good job. Okay. Well, you know what? I remember going to uh, a Regent Park Video. Maybe, Greg, you know, you're not familiar with that place, but whenever I would go to the, there to rent video games or movies, I always wa- we could see The Hills Have Eyes on VHS, and there was your face to remind me that this is a movie that is probably too scary for me to watch uh, because it looked quite frightening. Um, but uh, we we were talking off the air here, and before we talk about your career and uh, your your time, I'm uh, doing these expositions. You have a connection to Winnipeg uh, with your family. What's the deal there? Well, my great-grandfather's name was Joseph von Gores. He was from Germany. He came here in the late 1800s, and uh, he was living in North Dakota before statehood. He was a doctor, graduated from Heidelberg, Vienna, and Madrid. His uh, um, neighbors were the Mayo family, and he Back in those days, they, were, they didn't have a CBS store, so you would you would go along the rivers when they were still clean in the silt where uh, all of the herbs and plants grow to the most health, uh, health healthy uh, level. And uh, the Native Americans uh, taught him the the medicines in uh, the North Americas. And then when uh, he passed, uh, they considered him a chief because they shared knowledge, and he was a very compassionate, a very good man. And the Hudson Bay tribe, they waited for the, uh, I guess, the, the white men to say their goodbyes to my great-grandfather. And then um, the, uh, the tribe was moving to uh, Devil's Lake. They left the lower 48. And the last thing they did was dress in full battle regalia and gave him an honorable uh, goodbye uh, as a, a, a chief. And then they uh, moved to Devil's Lake. What an incredible family story. Yeah. He, wow. he used to go up to uh, Winnipeg. There was a hospital there. 
uh, between there and the Dakotas. Yeah. Outstanding. Um, Thank you for sharing that with us, uh, Mr. Berryman. Uh, you spent time in uh, Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, if we want to tie it, uh, tie the stories together and this whole idea of... of uh, it, you know, dealing with, with what you deal with and, and what you were born with, why don't you tell folks a, a little bit about that really quickly, because I think it's a very small part of your story, but it has given you your distinctive look. People know you immediately because of your face. As when I came out of the studio, I'm like, man, oh man, I feel like I know this man. And that's a wonderful gift. Uh, in a nutshell, um, my father was a, a neurologist in Los Angeles. He was a Navy surgeon who went to Hiroshima after they did the lab experiment. He came back glowing. I was the second born. I was born with about 14 birth defects. Had a craniectomy at Children's Hospital. They had to reconstruct my skull because it had no plates. It was solid. Um, had no teeth. No, uh, I lost my hair. I had one haircut on a Saturday morning. I was not too happy about that. Uh, long story short was um, I could see. Uh, I can stand up and not fall down pretty good. I'm happy with that. I've got other medical things to deal with, but next September I'll be 70, so a healthy lifestyle, uh, you know, be happy, smile a lot, um, it makes a difference. So I've been involved with a lot of charities, uh, Paul Newman's uh, Hole in the Wall, Boogie Creek Gang, uh, Schwarzkopf, Arnold Palmer, and, and Paul. Uh, I met Paul when I was doing The Crow at Brandon Lee. So my father used to go on house calls, and he would take me with him, and he'd go uh, to hospitals and see kids in certain situations. And he was very frank and honest about um, people's uh, uh, conditions and what their potentiality is. So for me, it's all about, um, you know, uh, not paying it forward, but love all, serve all, all is one. You know, we, we need to be more tribal in the good sense. And uh, so I'm very grateful to uh, having met George Powell, uh, in Los Angeles, he said, oh, you have a face I could use in a movie called Doc Savage. And I go, oh, I read those books. He goes, yeah, are you an actor? And I go, what? No, man, I want to go homestead in Alaska. I, yeah. I, I want to be a nature photographer. He said, oh, please be in my movie, please. So I did. Two days, Doc Savage, packing up my four-wheel drive to go up through Canada to Alaska. And I get a phone call, and they go, hey, uh, George... Uh, was doing a movie, and uh, I'm a casting director, but I'm doing another project called One Flew with a Cuckoo's Nest. So I go, wow, my dad was a brain surgeon, lobotomies, this, that, and the other thing. <laughs> uh, does it pay? Yeah, $700 for six days a week. Uh, I'll do that. And then the third, that was 127 days. Uh, I have a, a minor in art history. So when I got to see what a camera does, it paints a picture differently. And I go, wow. I can, maybe I can make a living as an artist. And then, dun, 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 I met Wes Craven. And then The Hills Have Eyes. Pluto, the name of your character in The Hills Have Eyes. I'm just looking at your IMDb page, and there it is, the cover, uh, the, the poster for The Hills Have Eyes. And once again, I'm getting... <laughs> it's bringing me back to my childhood when I would walk by that at, on the movie shelf and just kind of go, oh, my God, it looks so scary. Uh, but at, looking at your, your page here, you have not slowed down at all. You've got uh, one, two, three, four, five, six things in the works for 2018 already. Yeah. Well, don't believe everything on IMDb. A lot of those are, you know, hopefully we get funded projects, but um, there's a lot of wonderful things to uh, to do. Like uh, I do comedy. I love science fiction. It gives us a, a window into our potential as, as humans. You know, what we can, it's a cautionary tale. 
you know, uh, I, I met Rod Serling uh, in my uh, high school days. Oh, wow. The Twilight, Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, yeah. Yeah, my brother and I were in the Twilight Zone. I think uh, we were munching on a chocolate chip cookie that was a happy cookie. <laughs> and, I, and, and I said, what should we do? Well, uh, we'll be responsible. We're going to walk to uh, 31 Flavors, an ice cream parlor, 830 at night, and have ice cream. I go, yeah, awesome. And there is one other person in a suit. He just finished taping the night gallery. And my brother, instead of saying, hello, Mr. Serling, he goes, and the guy runs out the door and we cornered him and we had a conversation. He's a really nice guy. You seem like a reluctant star. Like this wasn't really your path in, in your mind. Would it be accurate in uh, suggesting that? Yes. Uh, if you have a, a, a visual or obvious difference in society, uh, if society is, uh, doesn't, hasn't learned to break down the fear of barriers and, and, and the first impressions, then uh, it becomes very challenging. So I've been very blessed to work with um, people that help mentor me through the process. I, 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 I had a very quick temper as a kid. I had a friend that had braces and pol- he had polio and uh, somebody would trip him down the stairs or something and I would just lose it. You know, I, my parents said, you can't, this is no way to continue through life. And I said, well, but nobody's, nobody's protecting this person. And so, you know, I've always been one for the underdog. Um, if, you know, if, if you really have to do something, um, be educated first, process it through your heart and then your action because the, these uh, snap to judgments, this... Uh, Push the button. Oh my God! No, just take a take a moment. So uh, that's why I wanted to go to Alaska and Homestead and be a nature photographer, work with animal and land conservation, because uh, it reminds me of a movie called Jeremiah Johnson with Robert Redford. There's a scene in there where he goes, "I've been to a city once." So you know, it's kind of Walden Pondish. It's kind of like you know. Go out in nature. I mean, Canada is such a beautiful. I love Canada. I mean, you don't you don't cut down all your forest. You don't you don't trash it. I mean, my goodness, uh, Joni. I'm reading Joni Mitchell's uh, biography uh, right now. So I got to meet her actually uh, years ago at the Troubadour, and uh, she was doing a sound check. My buddy who played a great Martin guitar, and um, we knew all of her songs. She was lovely. She played about four songs to us. And uh, Canada has also uh, brought given us a. Um, uh, Ian and Sylvia Tyson, who were, I just, I had every one of their albums. He, he, uh, he loved rodeo. He broke his wrist once, thought he couldn't play guitar, but God bless Canada. Michael Berryman is our guest. He is going to be at the Horror and Sci-Fi Expo tomorrow and Sunday at RBC Convention Center. And very quickly, uh, Michael, one of our listeners is asking, will you be signing things because he's got a VHS tape of The Hills Have Eyes? <laughs> yes, bring that relic in. I'll sign it. <laughs> okay. So, hey, thank you so much for coming to visit us uh, today. What a pleasure it is uh, to meet you and uh, get to hear your your gentle voice. It's so surprising, your gentle demeanor. So, so soothing. Yeah, based on, because I, I, Weird Science is one of my favorite films from my childhood, and uh, I think you're credited as the, the mutant biker of that, and that was a very frightening <laughs> yeah. part of that movie, so it's nice to meet you in person. Thank you so much for joining. Jerry, by the way, who won the passes for the, the Horror and Sci-Fi Expo? Ricky Boodoo. Ricky Boodoo, congratulations. That's all the time we have. Go see Michael Berryman at the Horror and Sci-Fi Expo. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Behind the glass, Jerry, thank you, and thank you for listening to 680 CJOB. And